Hello, church family. Thank you for joining us for another message from Res Life Holland. We hope this sermon encourages you in your walk with Jesus and empowers you to live the life God has for you. Now sit back and enjoy today's message. All right. Well, we've been having a few interesting weeks. We talked about eternity. We talked about heaven. We talked about hell. Um, This week is going to be a little more theological than usual. I tend to try and focus on um, things that are very applicable to our life um, and not get into a lot of nitty-gritty, but today we'll get into some nitty-gritty. We're going to talk about the second coming of Christ. Um, Interestingly enough, the Bible references his coming 300 times. Um, That's not a minor event. That's not a minor thing. Paul alone references him in his letters over this this topic over 50 times. The entire books of 1st and 2nd Thessalonians um, and most of Revelation talk about his second coming. There are entire chapters in other books, Matthew chapter 24, Matthew chapter 25, Mark chapter 13, Luke chapter 21. Those all talk about the second coming of Jesus. We as Christians are told that we should be waiting for the coming of the Lord. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 9 says, "They tell you how they tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath." 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 7 says, Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. James chapter 5 says, Be patient, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. Even communion... We think about communion. Communion talks about do this in remembrance of me, right? So we think of communion perhaps as being something that is backward looking, as in like, not backwards, but you know, you're looking back in time towards something that was done. But when we read 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six, 26, it says, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Even communion is done in an awareness that he's coming. This is easy. Now, as a Christian, it's easy to think that we're waiting to die and be with him. But that's not how the Bible describes us. He says, we aren't, he isn't waiting for us to die so we show up there. We're waiting for him to come back. Now, it's logical that we would think, well, you know, I'm a Christian and I'm waiting for him to come back. My great-grandpa was a Christian. He could have been waiting and then it didn't happen, at least not in his life. Like, why would I be waiting for something that, that doesn't or could, might not happen in my lifetime? For me, a powerful illustration of this came um, when I visited Israel a few years ago And I met um, a group of people that were part of the Jewish community that had been in Ethiopia. 
Now, to not bore us down or, or, or take too much time, it's not actually boring, it's quite interesting, but to not take too much time talking about what happened, like 2,000 years ago, there was a group of Jews who ended up in Ethiopia. They continued to follow. Now, Jews, we understand Jews believe in God. They, 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 their, their beliefs are based on the Old Testament. They share a belief in the same God that we do. The difference is they didn't realize that Jesus was the Messiah and they're still waiting for the Messiah to come. So the Jews there were living there and they had every year a holiday where they celebrated when Jesus, when God would allow them to return to Israel. Every year they celebrated this holiday. Every year, every year, for nearly 2,000 years. In 1991, okay, I want to read you just a clip here um, talking about Operation Solomon. There was persecution in Ethiopia. There was a uh, dictator, and the Israelis in Israel were able to make a deal with this dictator to allow them to, to extract any of the Jews that were there who were under persecution. On May 24 and 25 of 1991, there was an airlift of Ethiopian Jews to Israel, nonstop flights of 35 aircraft, um, including several C-130s and Boeing 737s. They transported 14,325 Ethiopians, Jews, to Israel in just 36 hours. There were, and one of the aircrafts had 1,088 people, including two babies who were born on the flight, and holds the world record for the most passengers on a single airplane. Now, what's interesting about this is that God was preparing these people for an opportunity that was going to come and close. There was going to be a moment when they would need to be ready. Imagine if, if you were under persecution and someone you should have... Now, what, I spoke to this Ethiopian lady, and I think we have a picture um, that I took with her. She was 16 years old and came over on one of those planes. And she explained to me, she said, we did not know that there were other Jews in the world. And if you notice, she's Ethiopian, she's very dark. She didn't know that there were any Jews that looked any different than her anywhere in the world. But because God had prepared them with that constant readiness, they had been celebrating every year looking forward. When, when the persecution was there and when the the Surprise visit came from the Israelites that were in Israel who came and said, we found a way, you can leave. But the dictator said, you only have so many days before I'm closing the door. 14,000 something left in 36 hours. Why? Because they were ready. Why were they ready? Because they had been maintaining a state of readiness for generations. I, I look at that, and I cannot help but see a picture of the church. God has called us to be ready for his second coming. Now, we're going to look 
into Scripture and some of the prophecies, and we're going to see why we have good reason to think it is not unreasonable at all that he would come in our lifetime. At all. But even if he didn't, there is so much value in being ready. This is what the scripture says are benefits to being waiting, to being, uh, having a posture of expectancy for the Lord's return. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 12 says, May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. May he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. This verse says that one of the effects of waiting and being ready for the Lord's return is that our love for each other would grow. When our focus is on God's return, a natural response is that our love for others, our affection towards others, our treatment of others would be affected. The Bible says that we will grow in love for others when we have an expectancy of his return. Romans chapter 13, verse 12, says, The night is nearly over, the day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery and not in dissensions and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. Another effect of expecting God soon, the Bible describes it as, hey, the day is coming. What, what happens in the day that doesn't happen at night? The light shines on everything that's happening. How many of you ever heard the saying, nothing good happens after midnight? Not that that's true, but what does it come from? It comes from the concept that in the dark, where there's no anonymity, where there's no anticipation of, of being seen, held accountable, or authority being aware of what you're doing, Shifty stuff happens. But when the light is coming, when what you do is going to be seen, it's human nature. We, we change how we behave. We, we recognize that we are to be holy. What is holy? We have that whole thing, holier than thou. And, and oh, they think there's some... Look at holiness is simply the, the, the state of being set apart. My kids are growing like weeds, go through shoes like crazy. Um, and so we have a hard time setting apart shoes for certain purposes, besides the fact that they'll outgrow them before they can. But as an adult, you know what I do? I have certain shoes that I wear just for running. Those are my running shoes. I don't just put them on and walk around all day. Why? Because I would break down the, the padding. And, and those particular shoes, I want to have primo padding for all the impact that comes when I'm running. And, and when they start to break down, I trans, 
for those to buy, just wear around the house shoes. And then I get another pair that can handle the nice pounding, and they are set aside for that purpose. Those shoes, by definition, are holy. They are set apart for a special purpose. That's what the Bible is talking about when it calls us holy. It says, you have a special purpose. You are set apart. Don't don't just behave in any old way because the Bible says you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. You are where God chooses to reside. His presence is in you. You're not just any old thing for any old purpose. And when we see ourselves in the light of his return, it is a motivator for us to live a holy, again, that's set-apart, purpose-driven life. I'm trying not to... uh, get bogged down, but other verses, 1 Thessalonians 5.28, John 3.3, Titus 2.11-13, those all speak to that same thing. Next is for the faithful meeting together in worship. Look at what it says here, Hebrews 10.25, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. This is a verse every pastor knows by memory. Why? Because this is the verse that encourages us to attend church. He says, do not forsake the gathering together of the saints. Don't avoid getting together with other Christians. But it doesn't say just, it says, and especially don't do that when you recognize that God's coming soon. Especially. One of the the effects of recognizing, you know what? God's coming back soon. He needs to be a priority in my life. I should be getting together with other Christians, learning about what God says and, and growing and seeing how is God using them and learning how God wants to use me. As we recognize that Jesus is returning, this should inspire us all the more to want to get together and grow as Christians. 1 Timothy chapter 4.13 says, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scriptures, to the preaching, to teaching. Do not neglect your gift, which was given to you through prophecy when the body of elders laid hands on you. Be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them, because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Here's another effect. When we are conscientious of God's return, he he opened that by saying, until I come. In the gap between now and when God arrives, he says, be intentional about your role, about the purposes, about being and living a godly life of Christian service. He says, these are things that you should be inspired to do as you consider my return. It's interesting that he says to persevere in those because if you do, you will both save yourself, you'll be ready for his return, but he also says 
others. He says that others will also be saved as a result of your behavior. That's my number five, a passion for souls. When we recognize that, you know, as a Christian, sometimes, sometimes it's tempting to try to time things to your death. I'm just going to be honest. You don't have to raise your hand. In fact, don't raise your hand. But has anyone ever thought to yourself, you know, I bet I could pull this off and forget forgiveness before I manage to die? <laughs> right? It's like, you know, I, I don't know. I, there, there lacks that potential of urgency. Now, we recognize we don't always know when we're going to die. We could experience something, some sort of surprise, a surprise car accident or a surprise heart attack or something. But most of us feel rather confident that we'll be going to bed and waking up tomorrow morning. But when we recognize that not only do we individually run the risk of a surprise situation, but God literally could return. It should give us a sense of urgency and passion, both for our soul and for others. 1 Thessalonians 1.9 says, For they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turned from God to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, who had ra- he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescued us from the coming wrath. 1 Thessalonians 2.19 says, For what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of the Lord? Jesus, when he comes, is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. Paul is speaking to the church, and he says, You, the fact that you have accepted our relationship with Jesus Christ, the fact that you are now right with the Lord, you are the glory that I'm excited about. Paul actually compares. He says, I'm more excited that you're getting saved than than I know that Jesus is coming because now we're both in. Another result of having an understanding and recognizing what's going to happen with Jesus' return Um, is found in 1 Thessalonians 4.14. It says, For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. Now that's a euphemism for those who have died. It says, According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, so those of us Christians who have not died at the time that he returns, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep, those who are already dead. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and the trumpet of God, or trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. We talked about this in detail last week. Their spirit has gone to be with the Lord. Their bodies will be resurrected. After that, we who are still alive will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. The last thing that I would say that a a good understanding of God's return does is it gives us comfort when we're grieving. When we recognize that those 
with a relationship with Jesus Christ who have passed before us, we will be with again. When? When we spend eternity with God. When he returns, and the Bible says, and we spend forever with him. The second coming is referred to more times in the Old Testament than his first coming. And this is, this is actually helps us understand how it is that the Jews missed his first coming. Because the Bible talks about the two comings of Jesus. And they, they were expecting the first coming to be everything the second coming would be. And we'll see that at the second coming, he will reestablish the earth under his reign. And that's what the, the Jews were expecting Jesus to do. If you remember, the disciples said, is now the time? Like they thought he was going to take over the Romans. But that wasn't it. The second coming is a personal return of Jesus Christ. Jesus said in Matthew 14, 2 and 3, he said, My father's house has many rooms. If they were not so, I would have told you. And I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I, this is Jesus speaking, will come back and take you to be with me that you may also be where I am. That's Jesus. That's how he describes it. In Acts 1.11, it says, Men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, this is an angel speaking to the disciples. He says, this same Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. The same way that he was here and he went up, the Bible says he will be there and he will come back into the, the clouds. When? When is this going to happen? Matthew chapter 24, verse 36 says, But about the day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the fathers knows. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in a field. One will be taken, the other one left. Two women will be grinding with a handmill. One will be taken and the other left. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this. If the owner of the house had known what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready. Because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. So at one point, you hear that and you're like, well, there it is. I can't have any idea. Well, it says it'll be like it was in the days of Noah. The people did not know what day the flood will come. But you know, if we read the story of Noah, the Bible says that Noah was preaching to the people, telling them to repent, telling them that judgment was coming. For a hundred years, they watched him build the boat. You think that might have been a clue? <laughs> I mean, Noah was building a boat in the middle of 
not a lake. There were signs. Now, they didn't know the day or the hour, but they knew the season. They didn't know that moment, but they did know an idea. They had an idea of when he would come. Matthew 24, 14 says, And the gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. It has never been so easy to reach the world as it is right now. Do you realize it's hard to find somebody who doesn't know who Michael Jordan is? Coca-Cola is everywhere, except for communist China. But I'm not kidding you. I have... I have hiked, like driven in a four-by-four truck for hours on roads until the road stopped, gotten out and hiked up a mountain, down a mountain, waded across the river, hiked up a mountain. Eight hours later, walked into a village, no electricity, no running water, and they hand me a Coca-Cola. <laughs> with, with the marketing, with the technology, with, with cell phones, all of these things, the, the message of the gospel can, can get to places it never could in, in instance. The Bible says that when the gospel has been declared in all of these places, then the end can come. There are other passages that describe different conditions that will take place. Um, but I want to focus on a few that have taken place and been fulfilled recently. Now, Isaiah 11, 11 through 16 says this, in that day the Lord will reach out his hand a second time. Notice, a second time to reclaim the surviving remnant of his people from Assyria, from Lower Egypt, from from Cush, from Elam, from Babylon, all of those places. Egypt, or Israel, had left the promised land. They had gone to Egypt, they had spent 400 years, and then they had come back. But the Bible says there would be a second time that they would be dispersed. And that second time, it says in, let's, let's keep reading. It says in verse 12, he says, He will raise a banner for the nations and will gather the exiles of Israel. He will assemble the scattered people of Judah from the four quarters of the earth. See, the first time, they were all in Egypt. But the second time, they were going to be all over the place. We just read a little bit of the story of some of the, the Jews that were brought from Ethiopia. I wish I had taken the time to, to compile some of the statistics of the thousand, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of Jews who have come back to Israel from Russia, from Africa, from the U.S., from South America, from Europe, from all over the world. It is crazy. And when you think about this, these are the, the, the same inhabitants. They didn't have a nation for over 1,500 years. 
They were distributed closer to 2,000. May of 1948 is when they, they received a nation and began to come back from those places. It was 70 AD when the Romans destroyed Israel, Jerusalem, and they were dispersed. 70 AD to 1948. During that whole time, the Bible was prophesying, talking about the, the Israel coming back, and Israel didn't exist. If you read some of the writings of some of the famous Christians in the, 19, in the 1500s, people like John Calvin and, and Martin Luther and, and all of them, a lot of those guys were confused. Because they read in the Bible that it said Israel would come back and be a nation again. And they looked and they're like, Israel, a nation? There hasn't been a nation of Israel for 1,500 years. No way. And they came up with some kooky stuff where they said, you know what? The Bible isn't actually talking about Israel. It's talking about something else. And they came up with these, they call it replacement theology. Baloney. But I understand, I... I, I have sympathy for them because they didn't have what you and I have. They didn't have Israel as a nation, proof of prophetic fulfillment, to look at and say, whoa, God has pulled it off. But we do. We have that. It says, they'll come back from the four corners of the earth. Ezekiel chapter 36 verse 24 says, For I will take you out of the nations, I will gather you from all the countries, and bring you back into your own land. Luke 21, 24 through 32 says, They will fall by the sword and they will take as prisoners to all the nations. Jerusalem will be trampled by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. There will be signs in the sun and the moon and the stars and the earth and the nations will be in anguish and perplexity at the roaring and tossing of the sea. People will faint from terror, apprehensive of what is coming on the world, for the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. And when these things begin to take place, stand up and lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing nigh. He says, you don't know the day or the hour, but when you see these things happening, when the time of the Gentiles has ended, when does it end? When Israel comes back to be a nation. When did that happen? 1948. When the the people were drawn in, and they've been being drawn in for, for the past, what does that turn out to be, 70 years? It says, look here, verse 29. He told them this parable. Look at the fig tree. And all the trees, they will sprout leaves. You can see for yourselves and know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happen, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I tell you, the generation will certainly not pass away until these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Now, this verse excites me. What is he talking about? He's talking about the reestablishment of Israel. The fig tree, Bible scholars all agree, represents Israel. And he says, when you see Israel blossom again, when the leaves come back onto the, the tree, they come back to Israel. We just read that whole section before about the time of the Gentiles ending and when, when they come back. He says, when you see that, that generation will not pass away. What does that mean? 
Anybody here alive in 1948? Do we got some? Okay. Most likely, what that verse means is that the generation that was alive when Israel, when that prophecy was fulfilled, will still be here when Jesus comes. Now, how long is a generation? We, we, we think of that, we say, you know what? The average lifespan is somewhere around 80-something. Okay, we're, we're coming up on that. There is a verse where, where God says, let their, their, their days be numbered to 120. Some people have said, well, we've got at least, you know, we could, we could go up to 120. Um, it says it will be as it was in the days of Noah. Remember that? Now, here's an interesting, interesting fact. Does anybody remember your Bible school trivia? Who was the oldest person to ever live? Methuselah. Do you know when he died? He died the year of the flood. You know what his name meant? At your death, judgment will come. Methuselah was the oldest person to ever live, and his death signaled the arrival of judgment. Is it a coincidence that God extended his life longer than any other man? God was not eager to bring judgment as evidenced by the fact that the oldest man to ever live lived that long as an extension of God's grace and postponement of judgment. If it's going to be like that, perhaps, perhaps we have a little bit more time, but not too much, because if we're understanding this correctly, that generation, how will that generation be alive? One way would be that Lots of people from that generation are still alive. That, that, that we come in under whatever a generation would be, 85 or 120 years. Another way would be that at least one person is still alive. That would still fulfill the prophecy, technically, if that generation has not passed away. I would agree. I don't know that that's going to be the case. But here's what I, I do understand. It's not like we're living in... in the year 1200, when there is no Israel. There are so many things that are falling into place, being ready for his coming. We, when we read in scripture and we hear about the mark of the beast and, and how there will be some sort of mark that people will take, they'll, they'll have to pledge, recant their, their beliefs or pledge allegiance. Somehow it's going to be religiously connected, but you can only buy or sell with the mark of the beast, it's a mark in your hand or your forehead. Man, when they wrote that prophecy, people were like, how do you do that? Nowadays, it's like, well, duh, that's pretty easy. Microchips, markings, you can't buy or sell, you need a pass, you need a passport to be able to do things. We, we look around and we see it's not hard for the prophecies that were really strange-seeming at the time that they were written to come to pass. There are interesting things in Scripture. Ezekiel 39. Here's, here's a fun one before we run out of time. 
Ezekiel 39 says, the son of man, prophecy against Gog. Say, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I am against you, Gog, chief prince of Meshach and Tubal. I will turn you around and drag you along. I will bring you far from the north and send you against the mountains of Israel. Then I will strike your bow from your left hand and make your arrows drop from your right hand. On the mountains of Israel you will fall and all your troops and nations with you. Okay. But who is Meshach? And who, what is, where is Tubal? Those are biblical names for Moscow and Tobolsk. Those are like literal places. The Bible describes in the end times that whatever is up there where Moscow is, <clears throat> Russia, would be some sort of superpower or dominant military power and would attack at some point Israel. Anybody noticed stuff happening in Israel or in, in Russia where they're kind of becoming territorial and like invading <clears throat> Ukraine? You know, like, is it, is it that hard to imagine? As you see that the scene is being set, Revelation chapter 16, 12 says, the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great Euphrates and its waters dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. All right, then we jump. The kings, the sixth, the sixth bowl is connected to the kings from the east. And then it says in verse uh, Revelation 9, 13, it says, the sixth angel sounded his trumpet and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God and it said the sixth angel who had trumpeted released the four angels that are bound at the great river Euphrates and the four angels who had been kept ready for this very hour and day and month and year were released to kill off a third of mankind and the number mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000, that's 2 million, and then heard their number. It talks about an army of two million coming from the east. There is not many countries that can mount an army that size, but guess who can? China. Again, I'm just looking at what the Bible says will transpire and recognizing that all the pieces just keep coming closer and closer together. The Bible says in Daniel 12, it says, But you, Daniel, roll up the sea, seal and the words of the scroll in the time. Many will go to and fro, and there will be an increase in knowledge. Think about human history. Jesus and Shakespeare could travel at about the same speed. For 1,500, 1,000, there was not a big difference. A friend of mine died hmm, nine years ago who was born in a covered wagon crossing Canada, drawn by horses. Okay? I knew him, hung out with him. He was born in a covered wagon. Now, nobody's traveling in a covered wagon. We, like, my son went... 1,897 miles last weekend. Huh. He flew to Arizona, checked out a college, and came back. Jesus couldn't do that. Shakespeare couldn't do that. Nobody on the place of the earth could do that until now. 
And the Bible says one of the signs would be that we would be going to and fro. How would you describe that if you were from biblical times and you see that, that humanity is just like zipping around the globe? These are all things that are coming to pass. We're out of time. But I want to I say this. We have good reason to, to anticipate the soon return of the Lord. We do not know the day or the hour, but we know the season. If, if we're comparing it like the Bible does to the time of Noah, I would say he's been working on the boat for quite a while. It's looking finished enough that it might float. I don't know what day or what moment Jesus is returning. But as a Christian, God has called us to anticipate, prepare, and be ready for that day. The, the most important way to be ready is to know that you're right with God. The Bible says, know that you have salvation. It says this. It says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus died on the cross and believe in your heart that he rose from the dead, you will be saved. You can know that your sins are forgiven, that you're right with God, that, that if eternity was to face you right now, if you were to face eternity, you wouldn't wonder if you would spend eternity with God, you would know. Whether that comes because Jesus returns, whether that comes because your heart stops and you go to him. Either way, you can be ready. If you know that you're ready, raise your hand. All right, if you don't know for sure, if you hope but don't know, the Bible says you can know. We just read the scripture that describes what to do. With every eye closed, nobody looking around, I just want to give you the opportunity if you're here today if that's you and you want to know with certainty before you leave today, raise your hand and we'll, we'll do that. I see one hand. I know there may be others watching. Let's pray together. All right? I want everyone to repeat with me, especially those of you who raised your hand. Say, Dear God, I believe that you love me, that you created me, that you have a purpose for me. I believe you died on the cross and rose from the dead to forgive my sin. I accept your forgiveness and I choose to live for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If, hey, if you're watching online, please send us a note. We want to give you a, a digital gift a little booklet, and uh, for you who raised your hand here, please come on down front at the end. We have a gift for you as well, um, and I want to um, thank you guys for coming today. Next week, listen, next week, Pastor Dwayne Vanderklok from Resurrection Life in Granville will be speaking here at the 930 service. Um, so invite someone. It's going to be fun. Um, he's, they're having a guest speaker over there. He won't be here for the, the Spanish service, unfortunately. Um, so just wanted you guys to know, looking forward to it.